Some of you may be familiar with the name Leonard Bernstein. He is considered by many historians to be one of the most talented and famous musicians in American history. He was the musical director for the New York Philharmonic for many years. He conducted many notable symphonies around the world. He composed the scores for musicals like The West Side Story, Peter Pan, and a number of others. But do you know the name of his first symphony? Leonard Bernstein made his debut with a symphony called Jeremiah. He wrote it in 1942, it debuted in 1944, it won a prestigious award, the New York Critics Circle Award, and that symphony propelled him into success. He went on to perform it in Boston, New York, St. Louis, Detroit, Prague, all around the world. In 1944, in a program note in his performance in New York, he described the work of Jeremiah, and also, interestingly enough, the, the third movement of that work includes a solo of the book of Jeremiah sung in Hebrew. He describes his work as this, the cry of Jeremiah as he mourns his beloved Jerusalem, ruined, pillaged, dishonored after his desperate efforts to save it. Now the symphony of Jeremiah is one of a number of Bernstein's works where by his own admission, what he was trying to do in that and a number of others, he's trying to wrestle with the crisis of faith in the 21st century, or the 20th century rather. And what you need to know is that while Bernstein wrestles with the crisis of faith in the 20th century, his conclusions regarding the crisis of faith in what he sung and tried to accomplish missed the mark. Underneath Bernstein's Jeremiah was this worldview. He says, a renewal of faith in the modern times requires a return to innocence, a shedding of the trappings of dogma and orthodoxy, and a fundamental belief in our common humanity. So do you hear what's underneath his symphony? Bernstein's interpretation of the world, his interpretation of the lament of Jeremiah is that we need to return to innocence, which is impossible. We should shed our orthodoxy, which is the foundation of truth, and we should believe in our humanity, which is the essence of the problem. <laughs> so he may be quoting and singing Lamentations, his symphony may be patterned after the story of Jeremiah, but I would suggest to you he's not truly lamenting, at least not from a biblical framework, because what lies underneath is not what lies underneath biblical lament. A lament is a heartfelt cry of sorrow. It is a prayer through which a believer pours out his or her heart to God because of the struggles and the tensions, the pains that one feels in his or her life. Lament wrestles with a gap, the gap between what the Bible says about God, what we know to be true about him, and what's happening in our world. It's where we wrestle with questions like why, or how in the world, or who are you that this is happening a Christian lament interprets pain. It takes the thing of pain, the situation, and it identifies what's underneath it. So it deals with more than just the thing that has happened. A Christian lament 
sorrows not only over what has taken place, but the fact that there's brokenness in the world and the fact that today God has delayed ultimate deliverance. And lament also tunes the heart. We saw last week that by entering into lament, it can actually tune our hearts or awaken us to the needs that are around us. It reminds us of the brokenness of the world or to circumstances that should break our hearts, that just become too commonplace. And so as we lament about them, we are reminded, oh, that is so wrong in the world. And therefore, laments can serve as a warning, even a wake-up call. And such is the case with Lamentations chapter 1. This book, and specifically this chapter, is meant to give voice to the destruction of the city of Jerusalem. It should remind future generations that there was a point in time when God's people had gone far enough, and the Bible says there was no more remedy. When God said, enough. So what this book does, and what chapter one does in particular, is to show us the brokenness of the world and the holiness of God. And today what I hope to do is to show you both. And in so doing, that you would have a heart that would be tuned to the reality and the sorrow of divine judgment. To realize that grace is only amazing because judgment is real. You take away judgment, you take away God's holiness, and grace is no longer amazing. So if you love to sing about amazing grace, if you love the mercy of God, if you love the redemption of God, if you love what it means that sins can be wiped away, all of that is wonderful, but it's meaningless unless judgment is underneath. Grace is only amazing because judgment is real. So what I wanna do is unpack Lamentations 1 and then make some applications at the end. First, the scene. The very first word of the first chapter of the first verse is important. It's the word how. In Hebrew, that's actually the chapter title, or rather, the title of the entire book. In the Hebrew Bible, this book was not known as Lamentations. Instead, it was known as how. And it's not a question asked like, how? It's a question that's asked like, how? How did that happen? It's the kind of question that I might hear that says more about what's going on behind the scenes if I hear my wife talking with someone on the phone and I hear her say, what? How? I know immediately something is behind that that's significant and terribly wrong. In case you weren't here two weeks ago, the setting of Lamentations chapter 1 is 2 Chronicles 36, where the people of Judah, God's two tribes that have been left, Ten other tribes have been decimated by Assyria because of their sinfulness. The two remaining tribes, after multiple kings that had sinned and erred, after multiple kings had been set up and removed, after deportations, after a brutal siege of the city, the, the wall of Jerusalem is penetrated, the Babylonian army marches in, they sack the city, they destroy the temple. The temple is stripped of all of its gold, the vessels of worship and the, the people are taken to the capital city of Babylon. The city and the nation of Israel are absolutely devastated. That's the context for 
Lamentations chapter one. Each of these chapters could be seen as individual poems. They, they're linked together, but not like chapters in a book. They're like individual poems. And it reaches its climax in chapter three. So sometimes a lament resolves itself at the end, but this one doesn't. This one reaches its climax in chapter three, and then chapters four and five are still dark. Because the reality is when Jeremiah says, great is your faithfulness, your mercies are new every morning, he's saying that not when the sun is coming up on Israel, he's saying that when everything has been leveled. Like the sun hasn't come up, and yet he's still saying, great is thy faithfulness. That'll change how you sing that song. This book does not end with a rosy picture. They don't live happily ever after. This book is what do you say when you wonder, is this gonna turn around? And that's why I love it. Because there are many times in people's lives, many times in my own life, when I look at a situation and wonder, I don't think this is gonna turn out well. And can I still say in that moment, your mercies are new every morning. The other thing you need to know about this chapter is there's 22 verses. There's also 22 letters in Hebrew. Each verse begins with a subsequent Hebrew letter. So there's a, an alphabetical context to this chapter. Let me show you this in Hebrew. Verse one, by the way, it goes right to left. Verse one starts with the letter Aleph. Verse two, Beit. Verse three, Gimel. Verse four, Dalit, A, B, C, D, E, F, E. A, B, C, D, there we go, I got that. <laughs> You're like, there's a lot more than that there. It's in Hebrew, so you wouldn't have known it anyways, right? But <laughs> the point is, is that the prophet Jeremiah is putting together this, this book, and it's as though he wants you to see that God's judgment and the pain here is total in its scope. The, the suffering is from A to Z. It's complete. The first two verses talk about the city of Jerusalem and notice that they portray the city, not just as a city, but as a broken, lonely widow. So Jeremiah is going to use language that's meant to be colorful. It's meant to draw you in. <clears throat> it's meant to be um, shocking. It's meant to be loaded. How lonely sits the city that was full of people? How like a widow has she become, she who is great among the nations, she who was a princess among the provinces, has become a slave. Notice she's weeping in verse two. She weeps bitterly in the night with tears on her cheeks. And what's more, her lovers have abandoned her. If you were to connect Lamentations to the book of Jeremiah, you would see over and over and over that Jeremiah warned the people about their spiritual adultery. And now here she is, isolated, abandoned, and sorrowful. Verse three, she's been brought into exile. She's received hard servitude. She's now scattered among the nations. The very nations that were supposed to come to Israel have now not only come to Israel, but have sacked Israel such that the people of God are now in exile. Even the roads cry out. 
Verse 4, the roads to Zion mourn, for none come to the festival. All her gates are desolate, her priests groan, her virgins have been afflicted. She herself suffers bitterly. So the things that had once been connected with celebration and festival are now feeling the pain of rejection. The roads mourn, the festivals are empty, the gates are desolate, the priests and young women no longer rejoice. And central to this lament is the fact that the enemy has won. Verse five, her foes have become the head, her enemies prosper. And why does all this happen? Because the Lord has afflicted her for the multitude of her transgressions. That's why. What this book does is it wrestles with the tension between the sorrows of life and the sovereignty of God. Notice that Jeremiah has no problem identifying that while Babylon was the means by which Israel was defeated, that ultimately God was the one who was behind the destruction. This is, by the way, one of the ways in which Lamentations is different than Job. You need to see them as in the same category, generally, but distinct. Job is about individual and innocent suffering. The story of Job is a man who's walking righteously, and God permits Satan to test Job, and he suffers, but he's still righteous. Certainly, he's not perfect, but he doesn't deserve all what has come upon him. In other words, there's not a specific sin for which God is correlating his pain and suffering with exactly what Job has done wrong. So there's innocent suffering. Lamentations is not that. Lamentations is both national or communal suffering, and it is deserved And that makes Lamentations challenging in some ways because I'm sure that there were some people in the city of Jerusalem who were listening to Jeremiah's calls for repentance. They were trying to live righteously. They were praying that repentance would come, but they were affected directly by the city's destruction. You know what Lamentation shows us? It shows us that there are times when innocent and righteous people are still affected by the consequences of other people's sins whether it's national sins, whether it's cultural sins, whether it's family sins. Some of you are still dealing with the ramifications of sins in your parents' life. Some of you are dealing with the sins in your children's life. And this book reminds us that that is a reality and then helps us to know how to talk about it. This book also reminds us that sin is more than just an individual issue. Sin is certainly my problem, it's your problem, but it's our problem. And then finally, this chapter ends with part of the reason why the book of Lamentations is written, verse seven, Jerusalem remembers. In the days of her affliction and wandering, all the precious things that were hers from days of old. So the book was written to remind them it, it didn't used to be this way, and for that matter, it doesn't have to be this way. So sometimes, the pain of the moment that comes is meant to awaken us to who we really are and who God is. And that's a good thing, as hard as it is sometimes. That's the scene. Secondly, the cause. What lies underneath this lament and the reason for this calamity 
is the sinfulness of the people of Israel. Verse 8 says it straight up. Jerusalem sinned grievously. Therefore, she became filthy. All who honored her despise her, for they have seen her nakedness. She herself groans and turns her face away. Her uncleanness, verse 9, was in her skirts. She took no thought of her future. Therefore, her fall is terrible. What's what's happening here? What What did Israel do that was so bad? Well, the book of Jeremiah records the warnings that Jeremiah gave to the people over and over and over. And essentially what they did is instead of having a heart that was passionate after the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who delivered them out of Egypt, the God who had settled them in the land, the God who showed up in the temple, instead of having a heart that was loving him with all their heart, all their soul, all their strength, they wandered. They wandered into other gods and other Entities, they began to fill their lives with all sorts of pollutions and morality, immorality, and all sorts of things. And in a word that says that they committed spiritual adultery. Jeremiah 2.11 says this, Has a nation changed its gods, even though they are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this, and be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. God looks at his people and he says, Do you realize what you've done? You've rejected me. And over and over and over, the people of God go through this cycle where they, they flirt with disaster and then God relents and he doesn't bring full end to their punishment and they return, but they don't return fully. And after... Time after time after time, there is this continual wandering that the people of Israel have within their hearts. Look at, listen to Jeremiah 2, 17. He says, have you not brought this upon yourself by forsaking the Lord your God when he led you in the way? And now, what do you gain by going to Egypt to drink the waters of the Nile? Or what do you gain by going to Assyria to drink the waters of the Euphrates? Your evil will chastise you. Your apostasy will reprove you. Know and see that it is evil and bitter for you to forsake the Lord your God. The fear of me is not in you, declares the Lord of hosts. In fact, the scenes in Jeremiah and the warnings are so dark that eventually you get to a point where you're like, these people are hopeless. And that's when Jeremiah says, there's coming a day when I'm going to make a new covenant with the house of Israel. And I'm going to take the heart of stone out of them and put a heart of flesh in them, and they will all be my people. I will write my law on the inside of their hearts. I will be their God. They will be my people, and all of them will know me. And the hope of Israel and the hope of all of us is one day that day would come. And you know what? It came through the person and work of Jesus. This chapter and the book of Jeremiah, if you know Christ, should make your heart weep and sing. That day would come in the cross of Christ when a person could be born again and God could take out their heart and put a new one in. But that day wasn't this day. So what happened to Jerusalem is a small but important microcosm of what kind of devastation sin can create and how far the human heart can go. Look at Verse 8 and 9, she became filthy. All who honored her despised her. The language speaks of shame and exposure, isolation, hopelessness. Jerusalem is experiencing what happens when God abandons you and lets you have what you want. You want to have me out of your life? Here you go. God, in effect, gave them up to their own devices. Does that sound familiar? 
Romans said that over and over. He gives them a taste of the consequences of their sin. He gives them, in in effect, a taste of hell on earth. So if in your life God has given you a little taste of the consequences of your sin, you ought to be thankful that he mercifully gave you that taste now because there will be millions and millions of people who will taste the abandonment of God in a place called hell because they didn't listen to the small little tastes of God's abandonment that were meant to awaken them to the fact that their hearts had wandered. This tragedy, though, is not just individual. It's the scale that is Stunning, verse 10, the enemy stretched out his hands over all her precious things. Verse 11, all her people groaned. They searched for bread. They trade their treasures for food to revive their strength. The idea is this, the whole land, it's not just individual people, but all of us have been decimated. We, we see not just the depth of sin, but we see the breadth of it. And that's what the stark, painful reality of Lamentations is all about. It reminds me that in the 1990s, I was able to visit Auschwitz while on a missions trip to Slovakia. You've seen the pictures, probably some of you may have even been there. What some of you may not know is Auschwitz actually involves two different camps. One small camp, Auschwitz, is in the city, and that's where a museum, um, a significant museum is there, like 15, 20 buildings that you walk in and you see the horrors of what happened in the extermination of the Jews in World War II. You see rooms, floor to ceiling of shoes or human hair. You learn about what happened in in that middle of that city and you are horrified that anybody could do that to human beings. And then you go outside the city to Birkenau. And there's where you see the scope of what can happen. Of 425 acres, 300 buildings, as far as your eye can see, the remaining smokestacks of barracks that have been burnt down, but the smokestacks remain, and you see not only the depth of depravity in Auschwitz, you see the scope of it at Birkenau. And it is absolutely not just sickening, it is breathtaking how sin can go deep, but it can also go so wide. The reason why Lamentations was written was not just because of individual sin, it is written because of a sin that had become so widespread. The people of Israel had been warned repeatedly. They were given opportunity after opportunity to repent. They could see what had happened to the 10 tribes in the north, and yet they refused to listen. What they did is they hardened their hearts against God's voice, and then it led to their ruin. And this book, this chapter in particular, is written to mourn the reality of a broken world, to mourn the reality of a people who have rebelled, and to provide warning to us about divine justice that in this moment was finally delivered. And my hope today is that you feel some aspect of the weight of the problem of sin in the world. And I promise you we're gonna get to grace. And if you're, like this is your first Sunday here, you need to know we're not always like this. But let me tell you, I think part of the problem with the world is that we aren't always like this. And to be candid, part of the problem with the church is that we aren't always like this. 
Jeremiah pleads for mercy. In verse 12, he says, is it nothing to you all who pass by? Look and see if there is any sorrow like my sorrow which has been brought upon me, which the Lord inflicted on the day of his fierce anger. Verse 13 goes further. From on high he sent fire. Into my bones he made it descend. He spread a net for my feet. He turned me back. He left me stunned, faint all the day. Verse 14, my transgressions were bound like a yoke. By his hand they were fastened together. They set Set upon my neck, he caused my strength to fail. The Lord gave me into the hands of those whom I cannot withstand. The idea is he's crushed under the weight of his own sinfulness. He's crushed. The city, the, the nation is crushed under the weight of their own sinfulness. They've lost the battle in verse 15. They're weeping with no comfort in verse 16. Jerusalem has become a filthy thing in verse 17. And in verse 18 is the turning point where it says, the Lord is in the right, for I have rebelled against his word. And you need to know, that's what I hope happens in your heart today. There's some of you who the reason you're in this room this morning is so that those words, perhaps for the first time, or maybe for the first time about a particular thing would begin to come from your mouth again and say, the Lord is in the right. I have rebelled against his word. What Jeremiah is doing is drawing a straight line from suffering in their life to their rebellion. Verse 19, he says, I called to my lovers, but they deceived me. There's no doubt in his mind as to the connection between the suffering of what's happening in, his, in, in their life and their spiritual adultery. And there's some of you who are in this room this morning who you know very well what's going on in your life is directly because of where your heart has gone. And there's just no doubt about it. You don't have to ask anybody. You know straight up the reason this is going on is because I am on the wrong path. And my hope, my prayer for you is today you would say, the Lord is in the right, for I have been rebellious against him. Look at the emotional effects, verse 20. Look, O Lord, for I am in distress. My stomach churns. My heart is wrung within me because I have been very rebellious. He attributes this emotional trauma, giving voice to the city and to the nation. He attributes their rebellion as to the reason for the emotions that he's feeling. I'll tell you, if you've done something wrong and you feel bad about it, you need to know that's a gift. Let me say this in context. You could take this too far, but let me just say it this way. Guilt is a gift. And when you, know, when you feel no more guilt, that ought to be the warning sign of, my goodness, I've gone way too far. And so this lament ends with a plea for justice. Verse 21, they heard my groaning, yet there was no one to comfort me. All my enemies have heard of my trouble. They are glad that you have done it. He, he, looks, he says, Lord, the enemies of Israel, look at what you did, and they, they, they laugh not only at us, but they see you as though you just decimated your own people. And so therefore, he says, you have brought the day you announced. Now let them be as I am. 
Let all their evil doing come before you and deal with them as you have dealt with me because of all my transgressions, for my groans are many and my heart is faint. Is he asking for retribution on the enemies? On his enemies? I don't think so. I think what he's saying is this. Look, I get it. My sin is bad, and I get it. I'm being punished for my rebelliousness. And when I say the Lord is in the right, I mean that I love your righteousness and I want it to be exalted not only in my life, I want it to be exalted everywhere. What he's coming to terms with, I think, in verse 22 is that he lives in a broken world, he's a broken man, he's a part of a broken nation, and God is holy. And he's starting to see the connections. Or maybe better, he wants us to see the connections. From A to Z, we live in a broken world. And there's a God who's holy. So, what do we do with this chapter? I know it's heavy, and I know it's unusual to speak about this kind of theme. We, we're, a, we're a very optimistic people. We're a chipper lot. We like to celebrate, and we should celebrate, and we should be optimistic, and yet, there's another side to that. Grace isn't amazing unless judgment is real. So let me share some thoughts. Number one, I want you to be reminded that sin has real and devastating consequences. One of the takeaways from this chapter should be that there are real and significant effects of sin, not only at a personal level, that's certainly true, but also at a community level, a national level. Many of you know the verse, the wages of sin is death. But I wonder, how long has it been, or when was the last time when you saw that, like you felt it, like it made you tremble, like you saw death working its way into a marriage, you saw death working its way into a home, you saw death working its way into a kid's life, you saw death working into a kid's mind, and you see death, and then you see it not just in one, but in five, and 10, and 50, 100, you see it in entire groups. You see it in culture, you see it around you, you see it coming at you from the television and the computer screen, you see it all around you, and there is this sense that the wages of sin is death and that our culture is embedded with a death principle in it. And I wonder when is the last time that you've really thought about that and seen that, because here's the problem. There's such an ambience of sin around us, sin within us, that it can almost become as though sin really isn't that dangerous. We can begin to, to trifle with it or treat it as if it is something to be played with. And it is easy to forget that because sin is so common and because it's so around us and because we don't see all the immediate consequences as if somehow when we dabble with it, we aren't eventually going to be burned by it. And we ought to be cautioned according to Lamentations 1 about thinking that just because there are no immediate consequences, that there are no consequences at all. Some of you got involved in something last week or maybe this weekend or last night and in the back of your mind you're thinking, nothing happened. And you think that just because nothing happened immediately that therefore what happened was okay. And I'm here to tell you that's what 
the enemy wants you to believe, and that's what Israel believed. And Lamentations is an example of what happens when God eventually says, look, I love you enough to say, you can't do this anymore. There's another side to this story of Israel that God didn't just abandon her. No, he picked her back up in order to awaken her to the reality of who he was and is. Sin has real and devastating consequences. Here's the second thing. Divine justice and judgment are a part of the redemptive story. So I'm sure like you, just like me, love words like grace and redemption and forgiveness. And oh, how we should love those words. But we need to be reminded that there's something underneath those words. That those words are meaningless without God's holiness. Those words are meaningless without judgment. Those words are meaningless without divine justice. Redemption is only necessary. Grace is only amazing. And forgiveness is only needed because God is holy and divine judgment is a sure part of the trajectory of the universe. Divine judgment means that Satan will not be able to reef roam free over the earth forever. It means that one day every sin will be dealt with, that hell will be populated with people who never turn their hearts and lives to Christ. And it means that the cross of Jesus Christ was necessary because we are sinners and because God is holy. Underneath grace is divine judgment. And my hope and my offering to you today, if you're not a follower of Jesus, is this. Look, God is holy. You are not, friend. I'm not either. And our only hope is not that we're going to get away with our sinfulness. We're not going to get away with it. We're not. And if you say, prove it, I would say, Jerusalem, 586. Israel, 722. That's why this chapter's here. It's to warn us. Don't you strut your way through life as if I can do whatever I want. Nothing immediately happens to me. I didn't get struck by lightning when I said that. And if God lays upon you a heart that feels guilty or bad about what you've done or feels the sense of, you know what, God is right and I have sinned grievously, you ought to thank God that that thought or that mindset has even run through your soul because that is a gift from him and there's some of you I believe today God is drawing you to turn and come back to him or turn and come to him for the first time number three forgiveness through Jesus is a miracle I'm making my way through lamentations one I mean you think this is heavy for you We've been doing this together for about 35 minutes. I did this for two full days. <laughs> this was heavy and yet glorious. I found my heart stopping and marveling at the beauty of what God has offered to me through Christ. It's not just that God forgives sins. It's not just that he cleanses people who put their faith in Jesus. It is that God pours out divine justice on Christ. And here are people in 586 who are decimated. Their hearts go left and then right. They run away. They come back. They run away. And their hearts are continually running away. And what God offers to us in the new covenant is what Israel would have longed for, which is that he could take out a heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh, meaning that God could change you from the inside out. And if you understand the beauty of that and you understand the awesomeness of who he is, you can't help but stop and say, why me? 
Why me? And then you also can't help but look at the little sins in your life and go, I hate that stuff. So sick of this latent rebellion that shows up. And that leads to number four. I want to suggest to you that a a kind of lament embedded within this chapter and one that I'm sure some of you know about in theory, meaning confession, should be a part of the fabric of what you practice on a regular basis. I wonder how much time or energy or thought you put into confession this week. Confession means to say the same thing about your sin that God says about it. It means to say, I'm in the wrong, Lord. And in many respects, this first chapter helps us to tune our hearts. It helps us to retune our hearts. We see what's happening in Jerusalem. We see that. We see the judgment. We see the holiness of God. We see the brokenness of the world. And we should see that and say, what about me? What about us? What about our church? What about our family? And we should use confession in order to retune our hearts to the reality of who God is and who we are. And I don't just mean like confessing the big sins. I mean that confession needs to be a regular part of our experience as Christians. We should lament over our sins, not to earn God's favor, but to be reminded about his favor. And as we lament over our sins, we are reminded how terrible they are. As we lament over them, we are drawn back to the cross and we're reminded what a beautiful savior he is. As we lament over our sins, as we say, you are right and I am wrong, we lay a stake in the ground and we say to the world, the flesh, and the devil, you don't own me, Christ does. And these are the things that cause me to fall away from him and I will not go back to them. And when I happen to do and flirt with them, I will confess them and anchor my life on the promise that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive my sins and to cleanse me from all unrighteousness. I can't cleanse myself from my own sins, but Christ can and lament through confession reconnects us to the reality of a broken world and a broken me and a holy God. Lament Church, tunes your heart to hear the message of God's grace again. So will you let Lamentations 1 become a platform to tune your heart to the beautiful grace of God? Father, we acknowledge that we are a a people who can so easily and quickly be drawn into all sorts of things that are rebellious. We agree with the hymn writer, prone to wander, Lord, we feel it. So, retune our hearts, we pray. Tune them in accordance with your word and with what it means to say the same thing about our sin that you say about it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.